Well, hey everybody, Praxis family and anybody that's joining us today, welcome. My name is Drew. It's so great to have you here with us. Man, it is Pentecost Sunday and we're excited to gather together in communities around the city. And for some of you, you're joining us online. We're just so thankful that you're joining in with us today and just want to give you a huge welcome. The plan over the next couple minutes, I know if you're in communities, you're eating together, and today is Pentecost Sunday. We're celebrating the giving of the Spirit to the church and what this day means for us. And so it's so beautiful that we're gathered across the city, eating together, sharing life together. And we're gonna take a couple minutes and actually jump in wherever you're at, whether you're in communities, whether you're watching online, and just take a few minutes and come around our theme of hospitality. The theme that we're in right now really ties into Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, and really what Pentecost does for the church. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you just to listen back as we talked about the habits of hospitality that really were birthed out of the church at Pentecost and the other church. Uh, either way, I'm pumped for today. What we're going to do is a couple things. One, in a second, we're going to get you wherever you're at, whether you're in communities or you're watching online, to actually read the text. Hit pause, take a minute, and we just encourage you just to read, get somebody to read the text, or if you're on your own, maybe read it on your own. And then we have a little bit of a guest via video, obviously, as we're in this environment. His name is Chris Weinard. Chris is a great guy. I don't know him personally, but he uh, is a great guy from uh, South Africa and just getting to know a little bit uh, from a distance his church, uh, Genesis Collective in Costa Mesa. They are a church community that gathers around the table a lot and has really been an inspiration as I look at the type of community we want to become, especially as we're this hybrid community that meets together in communities once a month and then obviously at Goodwill. We've just been asking how can we be a church around the table opening our lives together. So one, let's read the text together. Two, Chris is going to come and teach a little bit through the text we're going to read. And then at the end, some questions are going to come up just for reflection. And this is Pentecost Sunday. Let's open up our lives towards each other. Let's slow down. Uh, this is an important time in the church calendar for us. Guys, gals, the spirit has been given to the church. Let's celebrate together. Let's read the text. It's a very curious passage. Let me give you a visual aid. I have to use my imagination when I preach because I have to see it to declare it. And in our modern vernacular, it really would be Paul on a cell phone. Paul would be on a phone to Corinth. It's almost like Timothy saying, who is it? And he's saying, Corinth, what do they want? And what he does is he answers a number of questions. Now, bear in mind, these were, these were Gentile converts. They weren't Jews who had the sacred scriptures. They were from a pagan background or Caesar worship or something else. And now they find themselves in this collection in the Corinthian church. Could you imagine the pandemonium as they try to make sense of all these moments? What are we supposed to do? Should we? Shouldn't we? How do we know? There was no Bible as we know it today. They had some of Paul's writings and teachings. They had Apollos's and whoever else came through town. But it was pandemonium. And so Paul's fatherly heart, they say he was a short guy, receding hairline, crooked nose, slightly overweight, not a great communicator. But his fatherly heart keeps leaking through all the time, and here they have a situation that is completely out of control. The Lord's Supper, 
Now, many of you would come from a tradition where that is something like you know and understand. A wafer and grape juice. That is not what they had. What they had is they would eat a meal together. And the front end of the meal, one of the leaders in the community would take the bread, would break the bread, and would say something like this. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then they would eat a full meal together. And then he would pick up a cup, someone would pick up a cup, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ of the new covenant, and then they would drink that together. Pause there for just a moment with me if you may. You know what I love? I'm a history graduate. And what I love in studying history is what happened for 250 years. For 250 years, the church met in homes. On occasion, they were large groups as we see in Jerusalem, but by and large, they were small groups of Jesus lovers who did life together in a home. For the first time in 250, uh, archaeologists have found a house that had the walls broken down in a room specifically set aside for the function of worship. For 250 years, now those of you who are historians will know something really important happened at about the same time. And that was the demise of the Roman Empire from its pagan and Caesar worship to Christianity becoming the prevailing faith. Isn't it amazing? It wasn't a number of large, big, influenced, uh, celebrity-driven megachurches that changed an empire. It was many small groups of Christians who did life together around a meal. They ate together. That was the nucleus of a civilization shift. Now we know it wasn't just the church, but there were many other ingredients that brought about the downfall of the Roman Empire, the barbarians being one of them, and you and I know that. But there was another thing that caught my attention as I've been reading and studying this, and there was the two plagues. I can't remember the exact date. I think it was something like 160 and then 210, something in those ranges. But you know what I found curious as I read it? Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, particularly helpful. When the plague started creating incredible chaos, around the known world. There was no medical answer for the plague. And so what happened was people, the moment someone, a baby, a child, a mother, a father, a grandparent, picked up the plague, what happened was is that person was literally, according to historical accounts, thrown onto the street, the doors were locked and barred from them coming back into the family, and they were left to die a painful, lonely dastardly death. Those who were wealthy would escape to the country, to the beach, to um, the hills. But then there were small groups of Christians who ate together in homes. They did not run by the historical accounts. But they were the ones who opened their doors to those who were dying and brought them in and bathed their, their fevers, gave them dignity as they lay dying and fed them, knowing that the moment they opened the door, it would produce death for the parents, for the children, and for the family. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that for me is a brutal thought. 
I have to be honest and say, I don't know if I'm courageous enough to do that. I feel myself incredibly challenged that such was the compelling nature of an eternal hope with Jesus, that death right now is a simple way of bringing dignity and redemption to a dying person, and it's cheap at the price. A civilization was impacted by a group of Christians in a home who ate together and who opened their doors to let the dying come and bring their death with them. It's a brutally beautiful picture. The early church ate together. When Paul said, your meetings do more harm than good, he isn't talking about kids' ministry or a cool, sexy worship set or the lights or the production. He didn't talk about He said, when you eat together, that's how your meetings are doing more harm than good. Ladies and gentlemen, in our speedy modern world, the idea that Christians eat together every time they gather together is an anathema. It's a foreign idea. Chris... I've got to fulfill my Christian obligation. Start on time, for heaven's sake, I'm German. Well, I am. That's why I know. And I want, at one and a half hours, I want to get out of here because I've got dinner to get to. I've got to rush because this whole Christian walk, a modern trumpet call is, is selfish, self-preoccupied, and narcissistic. Please don't require anything else of me. It's not really close to the Bible, is it? Your meetings do more harm than good. Because when you come together, everyone thinks of themselves. That's what I suspect Paul might say to the modern Western church. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, said four things happens when we meet together like this. The first, he says, is partnership. Isn't it amazing that Paul is astounded? He says, when you come together, I'm amazed that there's divisions and fractions amongst you. Groups of people that have scattered and are preoccupied and, and little eddy currents of gossip and confusion. He says, how can this be? He's completely confused. How can it be that we come to eat together and all these divisions of self-opinionated priorities gather in when actually the very nature of this gospel is to create a sense of togetherness? Five times he says, when you come together. Ladies and gentlemen, Christianity is slow. I was in Laguna Beach. We've got a friend who has a house there and he let us use it. And um, Meryl and I were kind of foraging as is our custom. Paul went to the synagogue as was his custom. We go to the thrift store as is our custom. We got $20. And uh, there was this little book called Slow Church and I was curious. I picked it up for three bucks or whatever it was. And although I didn't agree with everything in it, there was this rolling sense. Slow it down. Slow it down. And initially I was disorientated and somewhat irritated by this thought because I'm a vision caster and I'm someone who wants to keep going. But here is this picture that we are in partnership together. We are creating a new kingdom reality. And what Paul is saying to these people is, don't you understand, when you come together to eat around the table, the joy is coming and bringing ourselves at the table, 
and enjoying that meal together. No divisions, no fractions, no arguments. No, we're creating an upside-down kingdom, a new kingdom that is exquisite, so foreign to a broken world around us. The second thing that he says is that it's fellowship. Um, Paul is amazed that some of the Christians were hungry and others were drunk. Let me give you a little Greco-Roman context here. Amongst the wealthy... Their homes were used to party. And what they would do is they would eat together. And then the women and children were sent out. And then more alcohol would come, the prostitutes would be brought in, and the slaves who performed certain services would enter in. And that was the accepted climatology, social climatology for what a meal looked like. Now these people were none the wiser. They were new to their faith and this culture was leaking its way in. And isn't it amazing, it's the first time that I see how jolly clever Jesus was. Because it says on the night that he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, and he broke it and they ate. And after supper, he said, this is my blood the blood of the new covenant, drink. And the fellowship here isn't coffee, donuts, right shoulder, three pats on the back. This is deep, honest, sustained time around a meal. This is not let's usher the kids and the woman out because we want a sacred silence for meditation and reflection or for promiscuity. This is rather a coming together in which men and women and boys and girls were celebrating together as we'll see in just a moment. Keep the kids in. This is a meal that we enjoy and delight in together. I don't know to what extent Jesus' childhood played into this. There's a Catholic uh, theologian and social anthropologist called Jose Bogola. And he wrote a big fat book like this called Jesus and Historical Approximation. One of the things that was curious for me was his description of Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth, a town of about two to 400 people. And what would happen is three homes, which really meant three rooms. Everyone in a blue-collar context lived in one room. Mom, dad, the kids, and sometimes the animals. And three or four homes backed in in a common patio. And there was a grindstone where they did the grinding. There was an oven that they shared. And all the meals were shared together. Now, I don't know what image that creates for you. But my imagination runs wild. Every once a year or so, we go to the Kruger National Park, which is a big park in South Africa. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no TV. There's nothing. We sit outside in the evening. We, we, we make our food on fires. And three generations eat together. And the little ones run around like crazy. Sometimes we've had a home near the fence, and the hyenas will come foraging for little snippets that we illegally throw across the fence. But, but you see, there's the celebration idea and I think Jesus loved his childhood. I think Jesus loved this environment where they played together. And kids come and eat. And off they come and they eat together and they forage together. And then they go and play again. And then his knowledge of the old covenant which was being fulfilled in him created a picture of deep, honest, true fellowship where life was exchanged around a meal. But, but that's what fellowship was. It was the houses attached to each other sharing a common meal space. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how 
impacted you were by the suicide of the celebrities recently? Bourdain, what was his first name? I watched him, followed him, I so enjoyed him. I just was stunned to silence and family and friends alike said we did not know. Why weren't we told? There is an ingrained longing in a broken world to belong somewhere. And we offer so many alternatives. Do you know one of the greatest gifts we offer a broken world is our dining room table? Where their knees can tuck in under the safety of our community. And transparency becomes the traveling language and we're honest and true to who we are. And Paul says, I cannot believe the slaves and the poor go hungry and the rich say, my food, my food. I get drunk. That's my prevailing cultural influence. But the slaves and the poor go hungry. He says, what are you thinking? This is a new order. This is a new way of doing things. We put our food together and we eat together. And as we eat, we enjoy the wonder of Christian koinonia, fellowship in a journey together. Number three, are you with me? Number three, remembrance. How many times does the author remind us, do this in remembrance of him or Jesus? This remembrance is not an intellectual exercise. Oh, I take a piece of bread and I think, oh, well, of course. Yeah, there was this rabbi guy, Jesus, and I'm a Christian, so I remember him. And, 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 and you know what? I'm, I'm so glad that he, he did that. And, and I dip it in some grape juice and I go and say, is that it? No, no, I don't think that's it. i tell you what I think it is. It's this incredible notion that I remember who I was when I first met him. Because I do. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman at college. My father was an alcoholic. I was a broken young man. And I feel almost as if in the crowds of people around me at college, Jesus pushed them aside and he honed in on me and he picked me up. I don't know, I wasn't seeking him. I wasn't this Christian guy who attended all the camps. I was the guy who was out of an exam early so I could get to the pub and have some beers. And Jesus pushed the crowd away and he found me. He said, come and love me as I love you. And he held me. And even I, I, I fought him. I said, no, 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 no. No, please don't. Please, please don't. And he held me and he held me. And he spoke love and redemption over me, and I could feel the inner stress and anxiety that held me captive begin to wean itself away. And yes, it's been a 40-year journey. But such was the profundity of those early years for me that I've never doubted my Heavenly Father's love. I've never, honestly, Meryl will tell you, I've never doubted the redemption of my Jesus, and I've never doubted the partnership of the Holy Spirit. This is not an historical intellectual remember. This is a deeply emotional narrative that I relive to remind myself in the most holy faith, God is a God of grace. He took me. He took me. He had no need to. I wasn't religious. I wasn't spiritual. I didn't go to the Christian club. I didn't do any of that. He pushed the crowd aside to find me and he plucked me into a great journey of healing and salvation. 
When I come to the table and I take the bread, and this morning I had a big chunk of bread and a bottle of wine, and I could hear people gasp as I poured a big glass of wine, but I wanted people to see this was really not just a symbol or an act of religious fervor. It is a deep incision into my heart that his brokenness replaces my brokenness. I love Jesus. I am 60. It sounds so horrible to say that. Can I just be 59 for a little bit longer, like 10 years? But, but I love Jesus. And the remembrance that he gives me is the remembrance of the grace that has come into my world. Meryl and I have not had a perfect marriage. We haven't been perfect parents. In fact, Meryl was asked to speak in a Mother's Day event, and she sent a letter out to the girls, our two adult girls are married, and what are the five things you love about me, and what are the five things you... Five things I did well, five things I did badly. And I thought, oh, well, that's a very honest and brave thing to ask your kids. And both girls came back with the same number one, five things I did well. Mom, we are so grateful that you apologized well. And Meryl said, baby, is that a compliment? <laughs> is that like, well done, mom, that was amazing. <laughs> but, but, but I tell you, let me let you into a little window of what that looked like. This is what it looked like. Because we said to each other, if we sin publicly, if we fight publicly, we've got to repent publicly. And to the awkward embarrassment on more than a few occasions, we'd have to, sometimes the kids were small as they grew up, sometimes we had to get on our knees, say, kiddos, we're so sorry. Mom and dad fought. And that just doesn't bring Jesus into the house. And it bruises your soul and bruises our soul and and, and, but, but you know how amazing it is, girls, and we take bread, and we say, this is the body of Jesus that was broken. We don't have to be a broken family. We, we don't have to live with brokenness and with anger. We can actually find Jesus, girls. And to be honest with you, often there was tears with us. And then I take a bottle of grape juice and I pour some cups. I say, girls, this is, this is the body, this is the blood of Jesus. And you know how often these little kids would come and put their hands on our, on our hips and pray for us, say, we forgive you. When we have the bread, that's what we're doing in remembrance of. It's this overwhelming gratitude for grace. You know what I find so interesting as a pastor? I find so interesting that people have been at church seven years and one day I'm like, has anyone seen Sarah? Oh, no, no, she doesn't come to this church anymore. I said, really? What went down? Well, actually, Chris, she confided in you, and then you preached, and you mentioned something, and she was so deeply offended by you. And I said, well, when was that? It was about three years ago. So in three years, how many times have we had communion? And three, and how many times, and this isn't to bag on her, I'm just creating a story. This isn't to bag on her. The Bible says when you have ought against your brother, leave the altar. Don't, 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 don't eat it in an unworthy manner, because if you do, some of you will get sick. 
And some of you will even fall asleep. Why? Because our soul wasn't crafted and created, ladies and gentlemen, to live with pain uncensored. Our soul has been gloriously created, this wonderful picture of a pulsing heart, soft and tender. And it's our job to keep it that way. And what a privilege it is in a community where we eat together. Not by the size of the stake or the wafer, but by the conviction that when I hurt you, when you hurt me, we come to the table and we say, I am so sorry. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken. Take, eat. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Drink the cleansing power, the healing power of that glorious name. Communion, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, as recorded here in this text, the primary focus of our meeting. It's the central piece. Architecturally, it was a table and everything rotated around that, ladies and gentlemen, because a healthy church is not butts on chairs, but souls well guarded around the table of the Lord.